Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeves. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heeves, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming back once again. We have an awesome episode for you here. We are in food plot season, and we have none other than Mr. Bill Winky back on Returning to the Habitat podcast. Now, Bill was on episode 100. Um, That was awesome. If you guys haven't listened to that, please go back and check that out. But he's back today, and we're beginning a new three-part series with Bill. So you're going to hear from him on this episode and then two more segments coming up. Today we're talking about what we should be doing for our habitat to-do list. So habitat or hunting to-do list with Bill Winky. That's the the um, basic information about this series, the habitat to-do list. And we're calling it, this one is going to be, you know, the late August, early September time frame. So we're going to cover things like mowing clover, um, planting brassicas, you know, percentages of grain versus brassicas and clover, um, Habitat and food working together, some, you know, bow tips as well. So just a great tip-filled episode. Bill is so knowledgeable and just so awesome to talk to. Um, I wish we could all talk to him all the time. He's great. And these segments, are, you know, we have a couple tips that we tried to outline on each one, but he's just dropping information left and right, guys. So, you know, get your, you know, your, your pen and paper out. Get ready to listen because we have a great habitat to-do list with Bill Winky coming up right now. 
Now, a couple episodes back, I mentioned the QDMA, now the NDA, Gun A Day Raffle. So this is a gun a day for 30 days in August. Um, there's less than 100 tickets left. The link is in the show notes under Gun Raffle. So if you want to buy a raffle ticket to help support the NDA, um, my friend Corey and Drew, they run the Southeast Michigan branch where the Back 40 is, the Field to Fork program, all of that. We're helping support the NDA by, by pushing this gun raffle. I bought a bunch of tickets, all my friends have. It's $30 a ticket, and you have a chance at winning one gun every single day. Um, you, may, you'll, you can win multiple days. So the uh, link is below under gun raffle. Do me a favor, head on over there, buy a ticket, help support the NDA, and get yourself a chance at winning one, two, three of 30 guns every day in August. I want to thank our listeners for the reviews they've been leaving on iTunes, that, that little purple podcast app on your, uh, on your iPhone. I mean, you guys have been awesome. We do really appreciate it. I'm sending out free 5-inch decals for reviews. I just got another batch of 100 decals in the mail. So I just want to read one, one review here from um, our friend Dan Feeney. Dan says, entertaining and educational. Great podcast for someone new to land management. The information provided is conveyed in a clear and concise manner, making it easy to follow and implement on your own property. The guests provide options when developing management plans and provide great perspective on tried and true methods, but also bring new angles and alterations of existing methods to continually make tweaks to your property. Big fan of the show. Dan, thank you very much for that. I'm going to find you and send you a free decal, sir. And, and the reason I picked yours, um, you know, these great reviews help push Habitat Podcasts to the top of the charts. You know, it helps more people find us, and that's a way that we can grow. So thanks for, for doing that. And then you also mentioned, you know, we provide options when developing management plans and great perspectives along with new angles and alterations. That's kind of one of the, one of the points we try to push across with our, our land plans is we're trying to bring you guys a different angle from our point of view, um, from the stuff that we've learned. So really just appreciate the, the kind words there, Dan. And for everybody that leaves us a review, there's a link below. You scroll down. You can leave us a review right there and um, you know, write something nice, five stars. I'll send you a, a decal. Thank you very much. All of our podcasts, everything you need to know is at habitatpodcast.com. Uh, we'll be putting some new articles up there soon. Uh, all the teachers and gear up there, so feel free to go check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. And I'd like to thank our partners of the show, Exodus Trail Cameras, Packer Max Colt Packers, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Morse Nursery, Realtor United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Killer Food Plots. Guys, we're going to be talking to Nick Percy at Killer Food Plots coming up next. It is food plot season, and him and I are getting on the phone very soon. He has all of his feed at killerfoodplots.com, and if you use the code HP10% sign, so HP10%, you get 10% off and free shipping. And I'm actually going to be heading out and planting my Carnage Brassica mix today after talking with Bill. I mean, it's, it's the time. 
So if you haven't got your brassicas in the mail from Killer Food Plots yet, check them out at killerfoodplots.com. 10% free shipping with HP 10%. The link is also below in the show notes. That is one of his top mixes, top selling mixes. If you're a little more newer to food plots and you're wondering what you could plant, uh, Deep Woods is a great option. There's some turnips in there along with some grains and some just steady options for shady areas. That Deep Woods mix uh, is, a, is a great option also on his website. And then maybe my favorite, that or the, or the brassicas, is the Resurrection Clover blend. So I, I plant that a couple times a year, frost seeding, new plots, into old brassica plots, whatever. I plant that awesome uh, KFP Resurrection Clover seed mix as well. Now, I was talking to one of our land plant clients, Matt, down in Indiana, and he was impressed on the packaging KFP how the whole back of their bag is clear. So you can see everything you're getting for the money you're spending. Nick's not trying to hide anything, and it is high-quality seed. I've been using them since long before the podcast and um, continue to use his products over there at KFP. So check him out, guys. Great guy, great product. Give him a call sometime. Extremely knowledgeable. Uh, that's killerfoodplots.com. All right, you've heard a lot from me. Now let's get into it with our Habitat to-dos with Mr. Bill Winky. Okay, we are back. We have Brian on the line. Brian's down in uh, the Caribbean somewhere, aren't you, Brian? Yeah, down here, Turks and Caicos, my family for a couple of weeks. Is that like the the podcast satellite office or, or what? I'm glad you're branching <laughs> out for us. Yeah, I'm hoping you approve the uh, location, then we'll uh, make it permanent. <laughs> I, I hate to see the invoice, that's for sure. <laughs> and we have uh, a very special returning guest today, Mr. Bill Winky. How you doing today, Bill? Good, good. How are you guys? I'm doing great, thank you. So we had you on um, episode 100. Great, great episode. We want to get you back on to talk about you know, some habitat to-dos, some, you know, some time-of-the-year type things, and some maybe some great stories that, you know, of the perfect mouse traps that you've made in the past. So, but first, I want to, you know, catch up and see what you've been up to. How's your summer been going? Yeah, it's been good. Uh, I had some changes in in uh, location and, and, you know, the way I hunt and some of those things, but... uh you know, so it's not. I don't have the exact same story. Uh, I've obviously got obviously got a lot of stories, but my current is a little bit different than my past. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, but we'd sold the property that we owned uh, down in southern Iowa, and we moved closer to my parents, which would give me a lot more opportunity to be around them. And as they're aging, you know, I felt like that was a pretty important step. Uh, the goal was to replace the property with another one within the 1031 tax exchange timeline closer to my folks. And I thought that would be fairly easy because, you know, related to everybody, know everybody. I thought, you know, I'd find something. And uh, that hasn't worked out quite as well as I thought. So, you know, I don't currently own any hunting land, uh, but I do have some really good places to hunt. So I guess I'm living the other side of the formula now, the side where <laughs> – People are knocking on doors or leasing land, or in some cases even hunting public land. But obviously, I've got thirty some years of experience of owning land too. So we've got hopefully a lot of stuff we can 
we can circle back to. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to bring you up to speed on, you know, the current reality. Uh, and, you know, I, I miss owning land. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes with it, of course. And it's kind of nice to have a summer where I'm not stressed out about how many inches of rain we got and all that stuff, you know. But you, you also miss that connection because when you're in the tree and you're looking at land that you own, you're not really thinking about what deer you're going to hunt necessarily or even how you're going to hunt him. You're looking at parts of the property thinking, you know, if I did a little bit of work over here or had another project over there, you know, what could I turn this into? So hunting has become a little bit less, you, you know, there's not quite quite as many dimensions to it because I'm not sitting there thinking about the projects. <laughs> I'm just sitting there. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a little bit different. Now, I don't. What, what's it like to not worry about how much rain you're getting? I can't even imagine. It's a lot less stressful, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, owning land, there's a lot of rewards that go with it, financial and, you know, obviously hunting and, and, you know, even just from the stewardship standpoint, there's a lot of rewards that come with that. But there's a lot of responsibilities and and uh, stuff you can't control that uh, kind of gnaw at you. You know, I, I hated those years when I did all that work and then nothing grew, that really frustrated me. Uh, I don't think this year would have been one of those years, you know, but I don't have to worry about it either. Uh, it would, that kind of stuff, I didn't like that. Uh, as you can well imagine, I mean, you, you lay out this master plan and you do all the work to get everything into place and then it just doesn't rain. Yeah. Uh, so then you just watch your master plan kind of fizzle out and then you're thinking, well, better luck next year. <laughs> so yeah. Just, yeah, so I, that that standpoint, and I think you know, just dealing with some of the other uh, parts of the land ownership that aren't that much fun, like the neighbor's cows getting out, and you know, some of those border disputes that you run into naturally over time. Uh, you know, it's a lot less stressful from that standpoint. But like I said, you just don't have that same sense of reward. You know, whether it's you know on the hunting side or even the financial side. I mean, nothing beats owning land. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, that's yeah, the, the cows getting out and that sort of thing. I'm dealing with that now a little bit too. My neighbor's got some some cattle, so I I hear you there. Back to your your 10:31 exchange. How much time did you have to to do that? Is that is that up for you now, if you will? Yeah, the, yeah. So I had you know by law you've got uh, I think you've got 45 days after you close to identify the replacement, and then you've got half a year roughly, not exactly, it's 180 days, I believe, but uh, to actually close on the replacement, and then you can call it a like-kind exchange. The And I had the purchase agreement in hand way ahead of time. The fellow that I sold it to, he gave me a lot of ground. You know, I think he gave me almost six months before the closing in order to help me find that property. And, uh, you know, I, I went right up to the time of closing looking for hunting land, and then I had to switch over because I didn't want to be paying capital gains because I bought that farm a long, long time ago. You know, so my basis was really pretty low, so I had a lot of capital gain in it. I just didn't want to take that gain. So I, I started switching over then looking for commercial real estate, and that's really easy to find compared to hunting land. I mean, there's commercial real estate everywhere. Uh, you know, and, and you don't really care which county it is, you know, which city it is, 
as long as it's a good piece of property and it performs well financially, you think, well, okay, you know, that's fine. But hunting land is so much different. I mean, each piece has its own personality. You know which neighborhoods you want to be in. You know, you don't want to just go buy a piece of land. Um, you know, so anyway, the, the point of the matter is that I didn't get the recreational land within the 1031 timeline, but I did buy some commercial real estate, so I didn't have to pay the capital gain. Um, so in theory, at least, if I do find some hunting land to buy, I can use the income from the commercial real estate to pay for the loan to purchase that. So that's kind of where that sits from a financial standpoint. It's, uh, you know, we could dive into all the numbers, you know, and exactly how that all works, but that's the kind of general framework that, that that 1031 works in. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea with the commercial property. Um, so you're saying even with the, the money that the commercial property makes, you could use that, or I mean, you could even possibly, if you found the right one, sell the commercial property. That might take too much time though to swap yeah, that back I mean, over. Sometimes, sometimes you can. That stuff's not super liquid. Um, okay. Because there's so much of it out there. You know, I mean, everywhere you go, if you drive around or even pull up some of the websites that focus on commercial real estate, there's just loads of it there, and, and it's not all good. It's like anything else. I don't know. I'm no expert on it. That's what kind of spooks me. I mean, I really do know what they <laughs> land, uh, but I'm no commercial real estate expert. So I, I'm, you know, uh, you know, we should stop talking about. It. I'm starting to stress out about that now. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the the point is that that stuff is outside of my my natural comfort zone, you know, for understanding how it all works. I can tell if I've got a good tenant and if it's a good lease and what the rate of return is, and you can you, you can factor all that in and you can buy the building. But then if the tenant leaves, you know, I really don't know what I've got then. Like I bought one that, you know, had a, a U.S. cellular, you know, one of the mobile carriers was in there, and I thought it was pretty rock solid. Well, then they – they opted for a different location, so I'm trying to, you know, fill that building now and stuff like that. It's kind of, it's not something I'm that interested in, to be truthful with you, but I didn't have much choice. Um, right. You know, farmland would have been an option, but the rate of return on buying farmland is really pretty low. It's really, really safe because you're always going to have a tenant. There's always somebody that's going to cash rent that corn ground from you, um, but your return is going to be probably in about the 3% range, whereas on the commercial real estate, you can be quite a bit higher than that, enough higher that, that uh, like I said, you could easily make payments on, on another loan just using the income from, you know, from that stuff. So, uh, you know, for better or worse, that's what I end up doing, and, you know, hopefully it works out. But, I mean, I can look at a piece of hunting line and tell you within a couple of hours and a few phone calls whether it's a good investment or not, but I could spend two months looking at a, piece of commercial real estate and still not know. Sure. Yeah, and uh, with COVID, it seems like there's a lot of challenges now with a lot of companies figuring out that they don't have to have a, a, a commercial space. They just have a lot of their employees working from home now. Yeah, and I'm, I have a little bit of that uh, on my portfolio, unfortunately, but I've got some retail in there too, you know, like dollar stores and some of those kind that are pretty much – permanent you know i mean those those things are pretty solid uh, yeah for sure because they're even treated as essential because they right, sell right groceries so you know i wish i had more of that kind of stuff you know i just i don't know like i said i'm i'm not that great at it 
<laughs> no problem. Well, that's that's a great reason to move on to the, yeah. the habitat and hunting, right? Because I know yeah. – um, Get away from this stuff. Yeah, and it, that's super interesting to me, though. I could talk to you about that stuff for, for a long time. Uh, oh, no. Maybe we'll have to do that someday because that that just really interests me. But regarding the habitat and hunting, even though you don't own a piece of ground right now, I have a feeling you'll be just fine as a resource here today. Um, what I kind of wanted to do, I'm still trying to find the best way to word it. We're going to have three different times of year we're going to talk about and probably break this up into three segments. Basically what I want to cover is three different times of the year, what a current item on your to-do list would be or what ours should be. One for, you know, right now, early August, one for late August, early September, and then one for, you know, mid to late September, all ramping up towards hunting season. And then secondly, you know, want to hear about an example of something you did during this time or your team or whomever comes to mind that were of a great example. And then lastly, we'll cap each of those situations off with how it paid off for you or a hunter, um, you know, where the mousetrap worked. Um, so that's my best way of explaining it. And uh, if you guys are good, let's let's get into the first one here. Yeah. So pretty much, let's talk about this time of year. Late July, early August, um, everybody's gearing up for, for food plot season and whatnot. What what would your main habitat or hunting to-do item be here this time of the year? Well, I think the for sure, without a doubt, um, you're looking at two things. Probably a final mowing on your clover plots. Typically, I mow mine once. You know, a lot of guys will mow them multiple times to keep them lush, but see, that never made any sense to me, and we can talk about that, but we're a little bit past my window on when I mow my clover, but that is one thing that a lot of people are still doing. They're kind of saying, okay, we've got August is normally somewhat of a rainy month uh, in the Midwest. Everybody sort of, you know, tees the ball up, hoping for the August rain. Uh, so mowing clover is one option, but the bigger one for me was planting the brassicas. And I always had a certain percentage of my food plot acres were brassicas and, and uh, a certain percentage were clover and then a certain percentage were grain, which would be either soybeans or corn. And, uh, you know, that that was really dictated based on the number of acres I had, of course, but also the uh, the needs of the deer during different parts of the year. And then also from a hunting standpoint, where are they going to be, you know, most killable? Uh, so you, you can combine all that into one. You can really serve the deer's needs and create a great situation for killing them at the same time. Uh, but one food plot, there's really not like a magic food plot that will do all of that. So I always had, like I said, the three different kinds. And this would be the time of year when you'd be establishing the brassicas. Some people will plant like a winter wheat clover mix at this time too. Uh, usually that's mid-August. But uh, this would be the brassica time. You know, get them in the ground. They say rain or shine, July 27. <laughs> you know, the old Farmer's Almanac, you know, uh, when to plant that stuff. And, and by brassicas, we're talking about like your turnips and your your uh, forage radishes, the forage rape, um, you know, that kind of stuff that, that uh, you know, grows the big 
giant leaves and in some cases the bulbs. So great information. I have two questions on that. Um, one, when you're doing your clover slash brassica slash, you know, corn or, or some larger items, what percentage, you mentioned you do a percentage of each. Is there a rough idea on what you do for those that you could list? Yeah, I'd probably be, I'd lean heavier towards grain um, because really when you think about it, especially here in the Midwest, the deer, they've got quite a bit to eat up until about now. You know, stuff's getting kind of stemmy now. You know, the, the kind of the terminologies that say it's getting a little rank, you know, like the, yeah. you know, the, the wild stuff that they can grab, the browse, so to speak. Uh, so they might be starting to touch on a little bit of stress now with the heat and maybe the nutrient content of some of their natural browse is starting to drop. But up until, gosh, July, maybe even mid-July, they can do pretty well just walking around the edge of the fields, uh, eating Queen Anne's lace and you name it. I mean, there's a high, pretty high nutrient value in a lot of stuff that we don't really think about. Uh, you look, drive along the gravel road sometime real slow, and just look in the ditch and see what stuff's been nipped off, and you'll be shocked how much of what's in there they've nipped off. Uh, so they're finding a lot of stuff out there. So, you know, the, the real vulnerable time for deer is uh, in late winter, really all of winter for that matter. Uh, but, you know, if you can give them grain, something to get them through those cold, cold months, and then if you got something that will jumpstart, something green that will jumpstart in the spring, and that's typically clover, if you have a reasonably warm spring, that clover starts growing as early as March, you know, sometimes even late February, you know, around here. If you have a cold spring, you know, it's going to stretch out. But did I say cold? Warm. If it's warm, it'll start early. So then you've got, you eliminate that, that other stress period, which is the end of the winter when there's really almost nothing left. You know, they've eaten all the grain and now they're just sort of waiting, you know, for something to start growing. Uh, clover really steps into that gap. Uh, so those are the, the two really biggies, I think, clover and grain. And uh, Nebraska is just kind of a filler. You know, you've got to have something to rotate your clover with. You can't just run clover forever because after a few years that plays out. And brassica is a great rotation with clover. Uh, and, and also deer do like it, and they'll come to that you know, pretty regularly through the entire fall and into the winter. It just doesn't quite get them through the winter as well as grain does. So so getting back to your, you know, I, I've probably been talking too much here, but the, I would say 60 plus percent of my food plot acres would be grain. And then the other 40% would be broken up between clover and brassicas with probably, you know, 25% total of, of clover. And then what does that leave? 15% of brassica, something like that. Um, and I just rotate my clover to brassica. Whenever my clover plots start to play out, you know, I just kill them under during the summer and plant brassica in there, take advantage of whatever, you know, natural nutrients you get from tilling the clover under. Uh, that, that really creates a, a great base for those brassicas. And then I'll go one year on the brassica, and then usually if you can create a, a weed-free enough seed bed, you can just frost seed the next year's clover in March, February, March, right into the brassica plot again, and now you're rolling clover again right away. Uh, but that's been kind of my cycle. Sometimes, you know, the, the weather will, you know, will deal you an ugly hand, but uh, that system has worked pretty well over the years. Oh, that sounds great. And then 
that's a good percentage. That will give a lot of guys some thoughts on what they're going to plant here very soon. Um, and you said with Nebraska's rain or shine, July 27th. Um, yeah. Can you can you go into that just a little bit? Because I'm I'm literally going to go throw mine in the ground like today. And yeah. there's no rain in the forecast for 10, 12 days. But I'm going to be gone for 10 or 12 days. So I'm kind of like, when you said that, I was very happy to hear that. Let's let's hear why. Well, the only thing you don't want to do is put your nitrogen on top of the ground. Sure. Now. Because uh, um, nitrogen is pretty volatile in the dry form. I think in almost any form other than, you know, if you were knifing it in using anhydrous ammonia or anything you can do to bury the nitrogen, you're fine. You know, but if you're just going to say, okay, I'm going to go out right now and I'm going to create a four-man plot, I'm not going to till it. I'm going to put my brassica seed on top of the ground and wait for the rain. Don't put your nitrogen down yet because it won't still be here, you know, 10, 10 days from now. Uh, some of it will, but not much. So with nitrogen, I used to always wait until my brassicas popped, and then I'd hit them with the nitrogen. So I wanted to know, because the nitrogen is expensive. I mean, it's more expensive than the seed for sure. So I wanted to know that I was at least going to get a germination, you know, before I spent all the money on the fertilizer. So that's what I would typically do, even if I used a drill. And I, I did a lot of no-till drilling on brassicas because it's quick. You get pretty good weed control. You know, you're not tearing up the ground and drying it all out. Um, you're better off just no-tilling it right in there. And if there is a little bit of moisture, then you take advantage of it and you can get some germination. And as soon as you know that you've got a crop coming then you then you can fertilize the heck out of it i just didn't like putting a lot of fertilizer down and then have it be a super dry fall and get nothing out of it that you spent you know a hundred dollars an acre or whatever more probably on fertilizer for something that never grew uh, so that, that that'd be my tip is get the seed down or into the ground ideally and then once you see that it's going to grow that you're going to make something then you can hit it pretty hard with the fertilizer and and the nitrogen especially will go into the ground pretty fast. The the P and the K, that takes longer to break down. Um, you know, you're always you can always spread that because it's not gonna it's not volatile. You know, it's not gonna evaporate into the air. So it's just gonna be there and you know, the rains will work it in and so forth. But the nitrogen is a lot more volatile. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Now getting back to your uh mowing of the clover bill is that something that you've always done or have you ever let any of them just go feral just to have a test to see if, what the benefits were of either way yeah we did that a couple of years when we had really really dry summers and it's, it's pretty hard on your clover to mow them when it's really dry because that stresses the plant pretty hard because uh, they got to try really really hard then to, to crank up another sprout where if there's already a you know, a plant there, a stem there, really all they're doing is trying to replenish leaves and, you know, taking a little bit of abuse from the deer. Um, I'd let them go a few different times and they did really well. So that's what kind of changed my whole mindset on this. And they start, when it cools off and the rains do start to come late summer, they do fill back in and they do look pretty good. Everybody thinks, oh, they're going to be all, you know, rank and nasty, but that's not really the case. I never saw that. The deer keep them mowed, you know, unless you've got some gigantic clover plot. Um, if you've got some little one-acre plot tucked someplace, deer are going to keep that mowed. Uh, really, the only reason I ever mowed clover was to get the weeds out. I never mowed it in order to start the clover over again, you know, so it would grow 
more lush. Uh, I guess my clover plots were never big enough that they they got that far ahead of the deer. Okay, that's interesting. And uh, there's there's been a little bit of debate on one of our uh, forums on on Facebook, the Habitat Chat group that we have about mowing and not mowing. So that actually answered a lot of questions that guys were going back and forth with. So I appreciate well, that. And I think it's valuable too to let it go to seed sometimes. I mean. I don't know if you get an extra year out of it or not, but, I mean, it's not the end of the world if the clover goes to seed. So now that we have, you know, the the brassicas on the list of things to do right now, I'm sure you have an example of, you know, a certain poor man plot or brassica plot that you put in. Let us hear about one of those examples and how it paid off for you you know, how and when it paid off for you and, and what that what that prize, if you will, look like. Yeah, I've had a few like that over the years. Um, we'll talk about we'll talk about one in particular uh, first and then, you know, if you want more examples, I've got a few more. But I had one spot that's um, I called it the skinny plot in uh, honor of the buck that I killed there, which we had nicknamed Skinny, but it actually served, that name actually served the plot pretty well because it was fairly long and narrow. And I really do like those kind of spots that are tucked back in the cover and they're, you know, not that big where you can, maybe you can't cover the whole plot with your bow, but it's narrow enough that a deer that's walking through the length of the plot is going to end up within bow range. And uh, that was the nature of this one. And there was a certain buck that we had filmed in July early July, and his name was, you know, we nicknamed him Skinny, but really impressive 10-pointer, beautiful-looking deer. And uh, I got to thinking about where does this deer live, where have we seen him in the past, where have we, you know, gotten trail camera pictures of him. And I pinpointed this this food plot, this opening that, that you know, like I said, that became nicknamed the Skinny Plot, and got that thing ready as kind of a kill plot just for that buck. It's probably three-quarters of an acre. 20 yards wide, I'd say, and about maybe 75, 80 yards long, roughly, maybe a little bit longer than that. So it's pretty long, but narrow. And I got that cleaned up and planted in the brassicas the end of July and, uh, you know, went in there and cleaned out the shooting lanes on the tree stand that was at one end of it. That spot sets up really well for hunting. I mean, we could, we could, uh, get off topic and talk about the actual huntability of that one too but purely from the, the food plot standpoint you know we put the brassicas in there knowing that they were going to produce enough forage to be attractive that year you know if you plant clover in the late summer uh, you can have a really really nice stand of clover the next year but you're not going to have much that first year you know if you put winter wheat with it or, or oats or something like that then yeah you're going to have you know some something but if you want tonnage of forage year one on something that you plant in July, then brassicas are hard to beat. So that's what I put in there. And uh, I think it was to see what happens with those spots. And, and, again, we could spend, you know, an hour, you know, talking about the value of, of some of these little, I call them staging area food plots, but these little micro plots that are back into the cover just a little ways, close to the bedding areas. Uh, those become social hubs for the deer. 
and it's the last place where you'll find them on their feet in the mornings before they pop into their bedding areas. And it's the first place where you'll find them on their feet in the evenings when they, you know, just step right out of their bedding areas into these little plots. So I love hunting those. And I created a lot of them. You know, some of them were natural and some of them I created. I never had to bring a bulldozer in. Uh, I was able to find enough little corners here and there that I, you know, turn into these these kind of a scenario. And But anyway, that's what this one was. It was adjacent to a couple of different bedding areas. So I knew the deer were going to use it a lot. And uh, the morning of November 9th or 10th, it would have been uh, 2016 was the year. And uh, he came in there following a couple of does. And, of course, it was their their normal routine, I'm sure. You know, come off the bigger fields, wherever they spent their evenings or nights, and, and you know, sort of hit these little small staging area food plots, micro plots, whatever you want to call them, and then, you know, drop off into their bedding areas. So he was behind a couple of does, and he offered me a shot, and I killed that deer in that plot, specifically hoping that I would, and having set that plot up, you know, specifically hoping to target that deer. So that one worked. I mean, it doesn't always work, but um, kind of like we talked about, you know, before the episode started, you know, so much of, of the deer's daily routine revolves around habitat and food. And uh, if you create the right combination of those things, you can be pretty sure that you're going to have an active spot. And uh, if you own land, that should be your goal. You know, you should be looking for ways to make the habitat better and looking for ways to make the food better. And really that's it, you know, and, and, you know, those are the two pieces of the puzzle that you have a lot of control over if you own land. Uh, and even sometimes on permission, you know, I know people that have permission that, that allows them to do that kind of stuff too, but uh, we created that spot basically from a sort of a natural opening, turned it into a, a really good and effective kill plot. And that was one of the bucks that died there. So, Bill, how big was the old skinny there, and how far was your shot? Mm, he was, I don't know, it, you know, I, I haven't scored a lot of deer. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say, you know, gross maybe mid-170s. He had one really long brow time. So, I mean, net score-wise, you know, some of the little stuff, you know, that, that would work against him. But he had some uh, – really long tines. And I called him skinny because he had long, thin tines. So he would have scored pretty well because of all that time length. Uh, the shot, and that deer, it was a unique situation. I'll, I'll tell you that. I got super lucky. Uh, he came out, he came into the food plot, followed a doe into the brush, and then came back out and followed across 30 yards broadside. Uh, I stopped him with a grunt, mouth grunt, and Gosh, I've had my my problems with string jumpers over the years, and now I just naturally aim low. And he was looking at me 30 yards away. 30 yards seems to be that magic distance where they're close enough to hear the shot really well, but yet they're far enough away that they can drop a long ways. And it just seems like 30 yards is just a my nemesis uh, if you don't aim low. So I aimed right below his brisket. And, of course, he didn't move. <laughs> so I shot my arrow, and it literally skimmed the bottom of his brisket right under his heart. And, uh, you know, I thought I was done, of course. And he was so rutted up, he didn't really pay that much attention to what was going on. He ran a little ways, 
I think he was about round 40, and then he stopped broadside and looked back trying to figure out what happened. And he's standing there looking at basically looking at us in the tree. So it was filmed. I had a cameraman up there with me too. I don't know what he was thinking, um, but at a certain point I realized that I was going to have to move even if he was looking at us. You know, so I I told Zach, I said, Zach, I've got to get another arrow out. Let's just hope for the best. So I got an arrow out of my quiver, loaded it on the bow. The whole time he was just staring at us, um, came to full draw, and shot him at 40 yards. <laughs> and he did And he did jump. He did, well, jump. He did drop on the second arrow. But I aimed a little low, but he kind of dropped and turned. So I ended up making a liver hit, which wasn't ideal. But, um, you know, I aimed low the second time, too. And, and it was, gosh, I hate that part. That's the worst part of bowing, I think, is string jumping. And it doesn't get enough attention. Oh, yeah. But anyway, that that's how that one died, and and uh, it was there's a lot of lessons in there, you know, not only in the shot placement and the strategy of aiming low and the way the deer behaved and his body language and all that stuff that maybe I could have read but didn't read correctly. Uh, I just had not ever had one at 30 yards that I grunted, he stopped and looked at me that didn't drop, you know, 10, 12 inches. Um, he didn't budge, so. You know, you just, it's sort of like you can't win uh, on that stuff. But you're always better off aiming low. I mean, I've learned that the hard way, even if it means you're going to miss the odd one. Uh, the highest percentage of them in that situation are going to drop. Yeah, I learned that lesson the hard way myself last year in Ohio. I had a buck that dropped and turned into a shoulder shot, and I didn't recover him. So yeah. I know what you mean. You're better off taking the chance because the majority of them are going to do that. Yeah, I'll bet it's, at least in my experience, and granted, you know, different deer probably, you know, every deer is a little bit different because of what, what he's, you know, the situation he's in, whether it's the rut and he's kind of rutted up and not thinking straight or whatever. Uh, but 80-plus percent of them are going to drop, I think. So you're tip. really playing bad odds if you aim for the middle of the kill zone on a on a buck that's at least even reasonably alert. And I've had a problem even with bucks that are standing out there 30 yards away in a food plot feeding broadside. Um, and, and gosh, I've had does, believe it or not, at 30 yards, 35 yards, that were feeding relaxed. I took the shot, and they weren't even in the, they weren't even there anymore. I mean, literally, completely missed the deer. Wow. I had one do that. This let this play with your head, but I had one do that. I think she was 35 yards. A shot completely missed her. It was, I mean, it wasn't the shot. She was gone. And then she came back to sniff the arrow. And I, I didn't. I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do here, but I'm not going to aim low this time. And I aimed right for the middle of the kill zone, and she didn't move. You know, and I shot her right dead square through the middle of the kill zone. So you tell me. Um, right, right. You know, I, I just feel like the safe bet is to aim low and just take your lumps because you're not going to wound deer that way. Occasionally you're going to miss one. But at least they're going to live to, you know, fight another day, and, and so are you. Um, that's If you're going to risk it, you got to risk it by aiming low. Good point. So that plot that you put in there, how, yeah. were, how did you plant that one? What kind of implements? on that one. Um, okay. I like to do that in the late summer because, you know, if you till up a food plot, you've taken whatever, two, three inches of dirt and just open it up and let it dry out. Whereas if you can no-till 
there might be a little bit of moisture in that top two or three inches. Maybe it's even enough to, uh, you know, to germinate that brassica seed. And uh, you get those extra couple of weeks of, of growth, whereas, you know, like, like I said, let's say the rains come the next day. It doesn't matter. You know, you can till it up, and, you know, it may not be as good for the soil, and there's a lot of science in that about no-tilling versus tilling. Um, but I do like no-tilling. If you got a no-till drill, I would say you use that for just, you know, everything that you possibly can and don't do very much tillage. Uh, so I was fortunate enough I had one that I could use, and, and that's how I put it in. Uh, they, you know, you got three options, really. Either, you know, run it as a no-till or you till the ground and then either broadcast it on top of the ground or cold pack it in, or you literally just spray, kill the weeds, and then just spread your brassica seeds right into the weeds and then hope that the rains come and the thatch of the dying plants, you know, kind of create that moisture barrier to hold that moisture on the seed. You're always trying to get the seed in a, in a situation where it's got enough contact with the ground that it can get enough moisture that it will then germinate and put down a root. And uh, just throwing seed on top of the ground doesn't always guarantee that you're going to have enough seed to soil contact that you're going to get a good germination. Uh, you know you're going to get that if you no-till it, and you're probably going to get it if you till it and then broadcast because the rain will, will really knock a lot of that extra dirt down around the seed, and you get nice seed-to-soil contact. But when you just broadcast the seed on top of the ground, it's pretty much a crapshoot. Uh, you may not do very well doing that. In the spring, usually you can. Like, you can do that with clover in a poor man's plot and get away with it. But when you try to do that in the late summer, you just have so few rains that, you know, you just don't stay moist long enough for it to, to really germinate very well if it's sitting on top of the ground. That's some good information there. I I don't have a drill. I'm going to go for the roller crimper. Um, we have a small roller crimper for the for the HEV, and I'm thinking broadcast, cover you know cover the thatch, crimp it down, and then um, you know pray for that forecast to change like like it hopefully normally does. So yeah, um, and that, great tips though. Yeah, that will work. It's just I would overseed like a 25% overseed rate. Um, awesome. Just because your germination isn't going to be as good. Awesome. Great tips, Bill. I think that's... Here's another one for you on that same note. Oh, please do. Worked really good is if you've got a soybean food plot or even a, I mean, in theory, a a soybean commercial field, and you'll get areas where the deer have really thinned it out, and you're standing there looking at it right now thinking, gosh, these soybeans aren't really doing that great. Um, just walk through there with your broadcast cedar and spread brassicas in that because, you know, even the little bit of leaves that fall off the beans, you know, as they start to mature and, and uh, you know, you catch a couple of rains, usually they're pretty clean. You know, if you've been taking care of your beans, you know, there's not a lot of weeds in there. Uh, you get a lot of good sunlight, and those are normally in areas with pretty good soil, you know, so all things are kind of working in your favor. I've had some really good uh, results doing that at this time of the year too is just taking some of those soybean food plots and just walking around with the spinner and, and throwing brassicas into it. Yeah, I mean, why not, right? If you might have some some browsed over areas. You might have some some beans that you know didn't make it because the drought or something. Yeah, I mean, purple top turnips usually do great for for that uh, application that I found. Um, yeah, and the seed is teeny tiny. 
So getting good seed to soil contact is pretty easy because it's almost like throwing dust out there. <laughs> um, you know, so any kind of rain at all, it should get that seed, you know, at least a little bit of contact with the dirt. That's awesome. I think I think the listeners, if you're listening to this show, now's the time to get your brassicas in, like Bill said. And then, um, you know, if they don't come in perfect or don't get the rain, like we might not, then, you know, go back and, and even overseed again possibly. But we'll get to that in our next segment here. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras. Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. <laughs>